Uh, we are in a series uh, called Jesus the True and Better. As we're looking at Old Testament stories, characters, and we're looking for the similarities or the types. It's a typology of Jesus, the one to come. And we're going to dive in in just a few minutes on that. But uh, this year, we're going to do something that we've never done at uh, Stone Point, And we're going to really uh, recognize and celebrate what we call Advent. Uh, Advent takes place in churches all across the world every single year. Um, but what we're going to do this year is we're actually going to participate and just recognize uh, who Jesus is. And ultimately, Advent is four weeks of expectation, uh, four weeks that you expect and you celebrate the coming King. And every single week, you light a candle in anticipation. And the very first candle uh, is ultimately an expectation of the hope to come. And uh, what we're doing is, is just expecting and anticipating Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. Matter of fact, I'm reminded uh, by a scripture in Hebrews chapter 6 where um, God has made a, just a covenant promise with those who would put their trust in Jesus. And he even goes back and he reminds us of the story of Abraham. And so in verse 13 of Hebrews 6, it just says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. And so God said, hey, there, since there's no one else to, you know, for you to put your faith in, I'm going to make the, the I'm going to make the oath, and and I'm going to stand by the oath. And he says in verse 14, Surely I will bless you, and I will give you many descendants. We've heard about that. We've talked about that. Then in verse 15, and 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 after a period of waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And men now swear swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, and he confirmed it all with an oath. And so God is always in the covenant-keeping business. He makes oaths to his people, and he says, I'm going to stand by them. Then it continues on, verse 18. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Those who grab hold of the hope would be encouraged, right? Then verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf and he has become the high priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. So Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the hope of the world. He is the one we celebrate. And so for that reason, that's why we are doing a series called True and Better, that we would not miss that Jesus in the midst of not only our Bibles, but the entire story of the gospel being weaved into our lives every day. Amen? And so Jesus is indeed our one true hope. Let's uh, pray and celebrate all he's done by lighting our first Advent candle, a candle of hope. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you, Father, that we see you not only in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Father, we see you throughout the entire Bible, that every narrative points to a nation and a man. And Father, we just pray that you would help us today as we dive into a narrative, as we look at Joseph again. And I pray, Father, that you would just show us what is in this story and how it reflects your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis, and I want you to turn to chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Now, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, we look at Old Testament narratives, characters, stories, and we see Jesus in those stories. In the very first week, we looked at Adam. Adam, a man who what fell in the Garden of Eve, uh, Eden, uh, with his wife Eve. We see that not only did he fall to temptation, but ultimately, just as he fell, sin entered the world through one man. Romans, Paul writes to them and says, and just as sin entered the world through one man, sin would be reconciled through one man. That Jesus Christ would take the penalty of our sin, and though the first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, the second uh, Adam, Jesus Christ, would stand the test of time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so you have one man named Adam who he failed under the absolute best of circumstances, a world that was created just for him. For his pleasure, for his glory, ultimately, so he would be the, what, vice regent of a holy God. That he would be second in charge. He falls. Then you have the other one that would come as the second in charge, and he would stand the test of time. Though he was tempted in every way, just as we are, he was without sin. Amen? That's Jesus, the true and better uh, Adam. Then last week, we looked at Joseph. And Joseph is a story about a, a young man who was, what, beloved by his father. Though he was the 11th son, he was the son of really... Uh, Jacob's eye. His father was named Jacob, eventually named Israel. And he says, I love him more than I love any other son. And he was not, hey, he was not in secret about his favoritism. He loved him that much. Why? Because it was of his wife, Rachel, the one that he truly loved and the truly the, the wife that he wanted, uh, although he was deceived earlier in, in his life. And so here it is, you've got this son named Joseph, who's loved by his fathers, but he's what? Hated by his brothers. And he was accused of doing wrong, yet he was innocent in every way. And we see that time and time again throughout this narrative. But he was what? Put into a pit. They left him for dead. They celebrated over his death. They washed their hands of him. And guess what? He comes out of the pit and is sold into what? Slavery into Egypt. And so here it is. You've got a group of people, the Jews, his brothers, his family, who believe he's dead. And yet now he's what? Made himself known to a Gentile nation, to a group of people in Egypt. And he's going to begin to rule and he's going to begin to reign there. And he is indeed the true and better Joseph. Are you all with me? So in 41, we pick up the same story, but he just continues to see other things added there. Now, real quickly, in 39, here's what happens. You see how in the end of 37... His brothers presume that he's dead. They've left him for dead. He is now living in what? Egypt. As he's living in Egypt, we see in chapter 39 that he begins to find favor in the house of a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar puts him in charge of his household. And he believes that he's a good man. That he sees that God is doing a work in his life. But something happens. As he's there, Potiphar's wife begins to have an eye for Joseph. And just as she's a good-looking woman, he believes, she believes that he's a good-looking man. And you see that he is approached by Potiphar's wife, and she says, Hey, when no one's looking, why don't you come and lay with me? And he says, No, I'm not going to do that. That would not honor God, and it would not honor your husband, Potiphar, the man in which has allowed me to what be over his household. And she makes another pass at him, and he says, No, I'm not going to do it. And again, another pass. And at that point, he flees and he runs. And she grabs his cloak and rips it off of him. And he literally leaves out. And what does she do? She takes a story and she flips it. She manipulates it to where she looks like she's the one who is betrayed. Although what? She's the one who's guilty. 
And she begins to tell a story that he made a pass at her, that she, re- what? she rejected that pass, and Potiphar takes him and he puts him in prison, right? So here's a question. Do you remember a guy, just off the top of your head, who was accused of doing wrong, yet he was innocent in every way? Yes. Matter of fact, it would go from Caiaphas to Pilate, to Caiaphas to Pilate, and six times Jesus would be tried, and every time he was found innocent. That is truly the Hebrews 4.15, which I've quoted several times in the last few weeks. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Was Joseph tempted just like you and I might be tempted? Matter of fact, a good man, a man who loves God, if a pretty woman makes a pass at him a few times, he's got to go Put some protection up, right? Make sure that he is standing firm in the word of truth, right? And that's what happens. And he stands firm, and then what happens? He's charged as guilty, though he's innocent. Sound familiar? Yes. Then what happens is this. He's sitting in prison. In chapter 40, you see that he's sitting in prison. And all of a sudden, he's joined by two other men. These two men are from Pharaoh's household, under the charge of Pharaoh. One of them's a cupbearer to the king. One of them's a baker to the king. And they have a vision one night, and they're looking for an interpretation. And Joseph prays to God. He gets an interpretation, and he shares it with them. He goes, if you all really want to know, I'll I'll share it with you. In three days, something's going to go down. And he looks to the cupbearer and he says, you're going to be spared. And God's going to take you and he's going to restore you back to the house of Pharaoh and you're going to serve him again. And he looks to the baker and he just goes, it's not good for you, right? And in three days he says, you're going to what? You're going to be hanged and the birds are going to what? Pluck your, just pluck your flesh. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound good, right? But do you happen to remember two other men who stood with another man on the cross. One of them was guilty. Actually, both of them were guilty. One of them was restored to life, and one of them loses life. One of them mocks and jeers, and the other one looks at Jesus and says, what? I believe in you. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in, what? Paradise. These men, one is restored, one is found guilty, and get this, Joseph looks at the cupbearer and he says, hey, when you leave here, don't forget me. And as you enter into chapter 41, verse 1, it says that two years had passed, and guess what? The cupbearer had forgotten all about who Joseph was. You know the difference between Joseph and and the cupbearer is that Joseph wouldn't have forgotten why. He's a man of God. Do you know why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise? Because not only does he have authority, but he doesn't forget those promises. He's a covenant-keeping God, right? Now get this, the story gets better. That's just extra. Like you can, that, that, I'm not even charging y'all for that today. That's just extra to set up the story. But what happens is this. Then you see that indeed the man is restored. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh in chapter 41, he has a series of dreams. And these dreams trouble him. In the first set, he sees seven healthy, strong-looking cows rise up. And then they're eaten by seven scrawny-looking cows. They're devoured, consumed. And then he sees seven healthy stalks of grain rise up, and they're devoured by seven unhealthy, withering stalks of grain, and they devour them. And Joseph tells him, after they search high and low for magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers, they come up to this guy named Joseph. Why? Because the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, I remember a guy who he, he shared his, 
dream with, you know, interpretation with me. And so I bet he can do the same for you. They bring Joseph in, and Joseph goes, I don't know what you're looking for, but I know a God who does. I can't interpret the dream, but I know a God who does. And so he shares with him the dream, and Joseph says it's one and the same. He says you're going to experience seven years of what? Hardship or a great uh, abundance, and you're going to have seven years of hardship, seven years of famine and destruction, and you need to be ready. And so in the seven years of abundance, you need to store up. And that brings us to chapter 47, verse 38. Here we go. Ready? Y'all there? If you don't have your Bibles, I'll provide, uh, we're going to put it for you up on the screen. Here we go. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the divine spirit? Essentially, what Pharaoh does, he says, we're looking for a man who can help us in the seven years of abundance. And he needs to be divine. He needs to be someone who is of God. Jesus has the same declaration in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, to be indwelled by the Spirit as is of God. And so you see Pharaoh's looking for that. Verse 39, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God's informed you of all this, there is no one that's more discerning and wise as you. And so he goes, if you're the one who revealed all this to us, if you're the one who interpreted the dream through God, then probably you're the guy we're looking for. And so verse 40, he says, You shall be over my house, and according to you, your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. He says, I'm going to put you as second in charge. All authority is going to be given to you. There is nothing that, that you need that you won't have. There is nothing that you command that will not be done. The only time that I will usurp your authority is if I'm sitting on the throne and it has something to do with me. He says, other than that, you are free to do as you please. Now, do you remember one other man who was given that type of authority? That all authority under heaven and earth would be given to him? His name is what? Jesus. Yes? Matter of fact... What does he have the power to do? He has the, the power to heal. He has the power to forgive sin. He has the power to do anything that the Father gives him power to do. And that's when all of his buddies, the Pharisees and Sadducees, begin to question him. Who gives you this authority? And he says, all authority is given to me my, my Father. All authority under heaven and earth is mine. I do nothing that the Father's not aware of, right? Yes. And so you see this type of authority being granted to Joseph. Verse 42, then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hands and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee and set him over all the land of Egypt. He gives so much authority that he says, every knee will bow before you. Every knee will come before you. It reminds me of Philippians 2.10 and it says that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Who is that? Joseph, right? And Jesus. That one day God's going to give him all the authority under heaven and earth, and one day everyone would proclaim that he is what? Lord of everything. That he is the Lord of hosts. That all authority is his. Now who will bow down? Everyone. You mean Jew and Gentile alike? Yes, Jew and Gentile alike will bow down to Jesus. Who will bow down to Joseph? Jew and Gentile alike. Understand? You'll see it coming. So here we are. Verse 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, and his, as his wife. Now, it's not Potiphar 
Potipharah, which is different. Got me? But he says, you're going to take a wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now, I want you to catch this. Here we are. You have a man who is dearly loved by his father, rejected by his family, his own, who is put into what? A, a pit, who raises out of the pit and is set free. His brothers believe, his family believe him to be dead, but he's living among the Gentiles. That sounds like Jesus. That's also Joseph. He's living among the Gentiles. While he's living among the Gentiles, God gives Joseph, all authority over the land. He says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, you are Lord over all things. God does the same for Jesus during that time. And then he says, and during that time, I'm going to give you a bride. And she's going to be a Gentile bride. And so just as Joseph receives a Gentile bride, guess what? Jesus also receives a Gentile bride. You and I, my friends, are what? The bride of the church. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, you are my sheep. He says, I am the bridegroom and you are the bride, Ephesians 5. Yes? And so just as Joseph receives a Gentile bride, so does Jesus, he receives a Gentile bride. And so here's the question. Where are we in the narrative? Here's where we are. We know that there's a Gentile bride. We also know that the people of Israel during this time are going to be scattered. Things are going to happen. And so let's continue to see this narrative. But you need to know that the Gentile bride is essential in this story and it's essential in our story as we move forward. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. I know someone else that was 30 years old when he began his ministry, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and he went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in cities. He placed it in every city city, uh, food from its own surrounding field. And he begins to make provisions for those in need. Got me? So catch this. Joseph makes provision for those in need. And anyone who would come to him during this time, time of suffering, time of famine, time of need, they would call upon him. And guess what? He would lift them up and he would meet their needs. It sounds very familiar to me to John 6.35 when Jesus says and declares, I am the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never hunger again. Come to me, you'll never thirst again. For I am what? The living water. Yes? And so get this. What is Joseph looking for? Joseph has given all authority from Pharaoh and he is looking that after years of abundance, years of blessing, people would come to him and they would what? Declare their need for him. That is exactly what's happening right now. Get this. In your, in your lack of abundance, in your life where things fall short, in this time of famine that you and I experience because of our sinfulness, we can come to the one who is the bread of life, the living water, and he says, I, I will meet all of your needs. It is truly John chapter 10. The enemy comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and give it abundantly. To the full. Joseph is meant to take care of people in need, that if they would come to him, he would give to them fullness. He would meet all their needs and give them all the blessings that they are lacking. Jesus does the exact same thing for you and I. Where you and I fall short, Jesus measures up. He is the abundant life that you and I need. Yes? Got it? There it is in the narrative. 
Thus, Joseph, verse 49, stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring for his beyond measure. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, which what? We must be saved. So Jesus is given all authority, and do you know what he does? He gives without measure. Ephesians 1 says that God gives something without measure. What is that? The Holy Spirit. What did Jesus do when he died? He said it's best, right before his death, he said it's best that I go away and send a more suitable helper for who? You. So get this. The man who gives out great abundance is able to take all of your needs and you should be fulfilled. Full to the brim? Yes? Lacking nothing? That's the church, the bride of Christ. It is anyone who would declare that Jesus is indeed the chief supreme authority, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who's been given all access to not only God, but all, all access to authority under the heavens of the earth. And so what is Jesus doing for us now? He lives among us through the Holy Spirit. You and I are what? Full to the brim. Why do I say that? Well, let me explain something to you. If you look at the Old Testament, there were many people who had the Holy Spirit. If you remember Saul, he was the first king of Israel. The Holy Spirit was actually snatched away from him in his disobedience. You never see that happen in the New Testament church. Why? Because every instance of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given with portion. It was apportioned. But now it's given in fullness. Like you receive everything you need. So what does that mean? It means that when Christ lives and dwells among you, you have the power that overcame the grave. You have the same power that not only parted the Red Sea, but ultimately brought Jesus Christ back from the dead. So what does that mean? It means that if you are living, not in a, a time of famine, but a time of abundance through Jesus Christ, the, the chief supreme ruler of all the heavens of the earth, it means you are without excuse, my friends. Did you hear that? Why? Because when you look at Colossians 2, 6, and 7, when it says that you should be rooted, built up, strengthened with faith, overflowing with thankfulness, it means that you have something to overflow with. That the Holy Spirit is not merely a limited thing to you, but you have it in all fullness. And so you and I are without excuse. It's not, what, Romans 6, 1, that you continue to sin that grace may increase. You have all the grace that you need. It abounds and abounds and abounds, even to the point of overflowing your life. The greatest tragedy in the church of America today and ultimately throughout the world is this. A bunch of people who continue to say, well, I just need more of God. No, you don't. You got all of him that you need. If he lives in you, he has filled you to the brim. You have an abundance. You should not live in a time of what? Famine, but a time of plenty. Knowing that Jesus is enough. We don't merely sing, you're a good, good father, and then take control of our lives. Just as if you were in a time of a seven-year famine, you don't come to Joseph in the need only to declare that what? When you're in the famine again, that you're going to take care of it on your own. That's foolishness. It's as if a dog is returning to his vomit. Make sense? And so it means that you and I are without excuse. That Jesus either lives in you and he bears richly among you, bearing much fruit, or he does not live in you at all. And so where are we conflicted in the church? We're conflicted in the church because we oftentimes think that I can go and do as I please and God will be gracious to forgive me. But he does not continue to forgive that grace may increase. That is not the gospel. 
The gospel realizes that God has already forgiven much, and because he's forgiven and loved much, and he is taking care of you in the, the famine life and the depravity of your sin, that you would what? Not only acknowledge that, but you would also live what? Faithfully for him. That you would love the king. Love the king well. Amen? Let me move on. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 42. So here it is. All the nations are prepared to come because you have one wise man who's been storing up wonderful blessings. Verse 42. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt and he said to his sons, why are you staring at each other? You know, husbands, you ever had your wife say that? What are you looking at? Right? Yes? Can I get an amen? What are you looking at? That's what Jacob says to his sons. What are you guys doing staring at one another? Go. We're hungry. I mean, you guys are withering away. We're hungry. Let's go find something to eat. And so this is exactly what happens. Verse 2, behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. So go down there and buy food for us from that place that we may live and not die. Why in the world do we come under the provisions of Jesus so that we live and not die? Why does the people of Israel go ultimately to Egypt so that they would live and not die? Why are they finding refuge in Joseph so they would live and not die? Understand? Then what happens? Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin for the famine of the land uh, was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler of the land, and he was the one who sold all the people to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Now, here's what I want you to understand. You are about to see something that's really important. You're going to see a scattering of a nation. You have a group of people who's living in a land called Canaan. Jacob, the father of Joseph, and all of his brothers, 12 of them in all, says, we're going to leave. He believes that Joseph is dead, presumes that he's dead. He thinks, I've got 11 left. He sends 10 of them and keeps the what? The chosen. The one that what is second place to his brother Joseph, Benjamin. He says, I love him so much. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too. And so he sends the 10. But what's interesting is you're going to begin to see that this is the beginning point of the scattering of the nation. Do you know what happens after Jesus is given all authority over heaven and earth? He's given authority after the resurrection. He is chief supreme, Lord of all, given all things. And then what happens? You begin to see a people who rejects their own and they're scattered throughout the land. Matter of fact, if you remember, Peter writes in 1 Peter. He says, I write to the elect strangers in this world scattered throughout Pontus, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. What does that mean? He says, there's going to be a day where my people are scattered. And what you and I need to know is this, that there's a timeline that's taken place. Seventy years after the Jewish people um, saw Jesus what, in the manger, ultimately about 35 years, almost 38 years after they rejected him as Messiah, killed him, crucified him, Nero would rise up as a Roman uh, emperor, and he would, what, persecute Christians and ultimately cause the, the devastation, and he would wreak havoc on them where they would leave their homeland, and they would not return to their homeland until 1948 in portion. And so for almost a period of 2,000 years, you see a group of people scattered. Got me? They're gone. And what's interesting is, is the scatter begins to take place in 70 A.D., but even prior to that, a thousand years, the time of David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, they were beginning to be scattered through what? Deportation. 
Why? Because of their disobedience. And so all the land that they inhabited was still ruled by Romans or Babylonians or Persians or Medes or someone else. They were not the nation that God called them to be. And they're experiencing what? Scattering. Got me? And so that's what happens here. They're scattered from their land. Now Joseph's the ruler of all of it. They come, they bow down. Verse 7 then says, Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized him, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8 is crucial, key. If you have your Bible, underline it. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph sees his brothers as they come. They're in a time of famine. They're wanting abundance. He knows them. They do not know him. That, my friends, is Israel. It is Israel. Matter of fact, you may even wonder, where in the world am I in this narrative? You are right here in the middle of Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 8. That's where we are. We live in this day right now. The nation of Israel has been scattered. Joseph's received the Gentile bride. There is an abundance of harvest that's taking place under the Gentile rule and reign. Yes, his people are going to come and bow down to him. And even right now, look, they don't see him. They don't recognize him, but he knows them. Yes. And so we're living in a time right now where the Jewish people, John 1 says, though Jesus lived among him, they did not recognize him. They rejected him as Savior. They rejected him as Lord, rejected him as Messiah, rejected him as authority. And guess what? Right now, they're living in a day and time in which what? They do not recognize the what? King of kings and Lord of lords. But will there be a time? Will there be a time in which God will reveal himself through Jesus? Yes. Read with me. Here we go. And so here it is. His brothers don't recognize him, although he recognizes them. Now Joseph, verse 18, after dealing harshly with them, putting them through the ringer, look what happens. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded us, yet we, what? he would not listen. Therefore the distress has come upon us. What has happened here? You have a guy who is chief in authority, right? Joseph. And he begins to question his brothers. And as he questions them, what do they do? They begin to fight about something that happened years and years and years previous. Over 20 years before is how long ago they had sold him off into slavery. They thought he was dead. Now they stand before him. They don't recognize him at this point. He is gracious to them and loves them anyway, but he also deals harshly with them. And they enter into a time of trouble. And they begin to just feel the angst and the agony of their decision, of rejecting their brother, their loved one, the one that was living among them, was dearly loved by the father, but was hated by his brother. That's him. They've rejected him. And look what happens. Reuben answers and he says, did I not tell y'all? You remember Reuben, the older brother? Yes, from Leah. Do not sin against that boy and you wouldn't listen. Now they're fighting. You got me? It's a good old-fashioned fight between ten brothers. 
I told you. No, I told you. Uh-uh, I told you. No. And it's just this all-out war, fight, in the midst of the one who knows everything that happened. And so let me ask you a question. Does Joseph know the right questions to ask? Absolutely he does. Does God know the right questions to ask when you and I are wondering aimlessly? Absolutely he does. But the thing is, they enter into a trouble. Matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 says, Alas, there is a day that's so great that there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he would be saved out of it. It's called Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble is not merely a famine in the land back in Israel. Do you know what Jacob's trouble is? Jacob's trouble is a seven-year period at the end of the age that what, the Israelite people are going to go through a troubling time and they're going to be disciplined for the decision they had to reject Jesus. It's called the tribulation. Seven years. Is it coming? Yes. How do we know it's coming? And here's why. Okay, And maybe you're here like, okay, I'm a little bit lost. I'm going to tie it all in for you. Here you go. We have a man who's dearly loved by the Father, who's rejected by his own, who's killed, resurrects on the third day, After being rejected by his own, he goes and lives among the Gentiles. He gives them all the fullness that they need. He dwells among them. He makes them their bride. He ultimately, from there, what? Begins to, what? Reveal himself, not only to us, but one day he's going to reveal himself to the people of Israel. But before he reveals himself and shows his face among them, he is going to put a rod on their back and he is going to discipline them through a seven-year period called the tribulation. Yes? That's to come. You'll see that in Revelation, and you could read about it. But what you have here is this, a group of people who have not recognized their brother, and so he puts them through trouble. And what's interesting is is this. If you were to read uh, Genesis 42, verse 6, all the way to the end of chapter 44, which ends in verse 34, all you're going to do is see this. Joseph is making his brothers troubled. He's making them jump through hoop after hoop after hoop after hoop, and he is literally disciplining them. And what he does is this. He has all the ten brothers come to him. After they bow down to him, he chooses not to reveal himself to them. He says, I tell you what, I want, uh, I want all, uh, one of you guys is going to be uh, sent back, and the rest of you are going to stay. I'm going to lock you up. He locks them up for three days. After three days, he decides, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to keep one of you, and I'm going to send the rest of you back to your father. And you have one job. You have a father, which you say is still alive, and you have a brother that's still alive, but he didn't come with you. You're to bring the youngest brother back with you. And that distresses them even more. Why? Because they know that their father, Jacob, is going to be, what, resistant to let go of that son. Why? Because he's already lost one son. And so Jacob, as he's being questioned by the sons after their return, they say, Dad, we've got to take him back. And he goes, what do you mean you've got to take him back? What in the world were you doing even telling him that you had another brother? And they said, Dad, we, we did it. He asked all the right questions. It was as if he was inspired by God. And ultimately, they finally let that younger brother go, and he goes back after a time that they were in the land. He goes back, and now here it is, 11 brothers that are bowing down to Joseph. Did he say that that would happen? Yes. They bow down to him, and ultimately he recognizes them, and he begins to plead with them even more. After some time of dining with them, he still has not revealed himself to them. He sends them back on their way back to the Father. And under great distress, they're going away. But what he had done is packed their bags with silver 
And Benjamin, he take a silver goblet, a cup from the king, and he placed it in his bag, and he made it look like he was a thief. Now the brothers are going to be under great distress, right? Great turmoil. They're going to be sweating. Why? Because after he had done that and sends them away, he lets them get a few miles down the road, and he sends his caravan. All the dignitaries of the king, all the dignitaries that Joseph had in his hands, and they go, and they grab these men, the the 11 brothers, and they say, one of you has stolen something from the king. And sure enough, they go digging through the bags, and it's a setup, it's a ploy, and they come to Benjamin, the youngest brother. And they say, oh, it was you. Now, can you imagine what panic the other 10 brothers are going under right now? We promised an oath to our father that we would not let anything happen to our younger brother, and now he's going to be held captive. And you can imagine this conversation. They all come back under the king. He has this plan, and Joseph is just reaming his brothers. He's disciplining them for all that they've done. They're in sheer panic. They are literally wondering. Reuben is even saying, no, you can do anything. You can keep me, but please, we promised our father that he would return. And it brings you to the end of chapter 44. And what happened at the end of chapter 44, you see all that they have been put through by Joseph. And in 45, verse 1, you see that Joseph can no longer hold it together. Look what happens. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried. And you can almost imagine the weeping and the wailing. Like he has disciplined them, he has chastened them, but he knows now is the time that it's time for me to reveal myself to my brothers. And look what happens. And he cries, have everyone go out from me. So there was, alas, no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. I personally, I believe wholeheartedly that Genesis 45 verse 1, the fact that there's no one else in the presence when Jesus reveals himself to Israel, means that the church has also been raptured. The other part of that is this. Before he ever deals with Israel, he what? Has a Gentile bride. And so I see the Gentile bride and the fact that that what? He's revealing himself at an appropriate time that the church is raptured first and then he deals with Israel over a seven-year tribulation period. I believe it's right here in this text. I believe it's another text. That's a non-essential. If we don't agree on that, that's okay. I just see that here in this story. I believe that. But you see he weeps so loudly that the Egyptians hear it. They heard it. Even the household of Pharaoh hears it. Like, can you imagine how much he's sobbing and crying? And look what happens. Then Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am he. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Do you think that's going to happen for Israel? Can you imagine this? Being the people, the Jewish people, who have rejected Jesus as Savior for all of these years, 2,000 to be exact, and one day he's going to reveal themselves after a seven-year time of Jacob's trouble. A seven-year tribulation, he finally reveals himself. What do you think they're going to do? Do you think their chins are going to hit the floor? Do you think their knees are going to bow? You better believe they are. And that's exactly what happens here. They are shocked and dismayed. And he's going to reveal himself soon. How soon? Well, Jesus says in himself in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels know. Not even I know. Only the Father knows the time that I'll be revealed. And so is it coming? Yes. Then he said to his brothers, verse 4, 
please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery, into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Then look at Genesis chapter 50. After a series of things, Jacob has died at this point. All these years they've lived there. Jacob's died and his brothers begin to question the decision. Well, after our father has died, do you think that Joseph's going to renege on his word? You think he's going to go back on his covenant promise? That he's going to protect us? You think he's going to get us now? And look what happens in Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your what? Servants. Israel is going to fall to their knee and they're going to say, Behold, we are your servants. We once rejected you, but we now know who you are. We were once blind, but we now see. We have been lame. We have been scattered. We have been walking aimlessly all these years. But Lord, you have healed us through your son. The one who what? Died as a ransom for many. Who made a provision for all who would call upon them. The Gentiles called upon you, Lord. But we rejected you. And now we see. And they fall and they say, behold, we are your servants. Is that going to happen? Yes. And he says, do not be afraid for us. Am I in God's place? He says, I'm second in control, right? Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And he says, essentially, you meant something for evil, but God used it for good in order to bring about results, to preserve life for many people. Got me? So what is he saying? He's saying this. Even though you use something for evil, God's turned about for good. Is God doing that even right now in the, the days and age that we live in? Yes. A day and age where, where evil is prevalent. It's everywhere around us. Is God using those things for his glory and ultimately for good? Yes. What will one day, will he reconcile all things that have been broken unto himself? Will he make all things right? Yes, he will. And that's the hope that for us as Christians, we hold out hope. Why? Because he is truly Truly, not only the God of Jacob, not only the God of Abraham and Isaac, but he is the God of those who will call upon him, whether you're Jew or Gentile alike. Amen? One day we're going to see him face to face. He's going to reveal himself to his bride, but ultimately one day to Israel, the ones that have rejected him, have hated him, although he was innocent in every way. Yes? So let me ask you a question. If I were to say, who is this guy? Who would it be? A guy who was what? Accused of doing wrong, but was innocent. Who was loved devoutly by his father. Who was ultimately betrayed. Who ultimately was what? Sold. Was put into a pit. Eventually rose from that. Lived among what? The Gentile people. He declared himself to the Gentiles. He met all of their needs in abundance. But one day, as he began to see what would happen through a a time of famine in the land, he would allow his people to return. And at the appropriate time, he would reveal himself to them. He would forgive them after a time of discipline, and he would rule with them and reign with them, and they would be his people. Who is that? It's Joseph, isn't it? It's also Jesus. Do you see it? Are you all with me? Man, that's why he's the hope of the world. 
He's the hope of the world. It's why we should celebrate him. Why? Because Revelation 19 says there's a day coming soon. And here's the day. I'm going to read it. I'm going to finish with it. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has the name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses themselves. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down all the nations. And he will rule with them on them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And my friends, his name is Jesus. God's salvation. So my prayer is, is this. Is that just as he was there for people, not just Jews, but the whole world during a time of famine, he is there for you. And there are many in this room right here that you have done everything in your life to try to produce abundance. And time and time and time again, you fall short, feeling like you are merely what? worthless that you try and you drive your truck off the road time and time again that your life is truly stuck in a pit listen to my friends it's time that you come and you see and you know and you abide in jesus christ and you allow him to be the provision that you cannot make for yourself that you allow him to forgive your sin and to make things right why because that's what christmas is about the hope of the world the savior born in the city of David, proclaimed from the line of Joseph, ultimately the line of Judah, Joseph's brother in God's grace. That's Genesis 39, 38, 38. He's here. He's made himself among us. He's dwelling among the Gentiles, the bride of Christ, and one day he'll reveal himself to his own at the appointed time. Amen? I think that's worth celebrating. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing together. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are gracious. And we thank you, Father, that just as we read a, a narrative in Genesis, the very first book in our Bible, we see the story of Adam and we see how he falls short. But Lord, we also see how Jesus makes all things right. We see how Joseph was innocent in every way, though he was accused of doing wrong. They could find no fault with him, whether it was his brothers or Potiphar's wife or Pharaoh or anyone else who would call upon him. He was perfect. He was innocent in every way. He never had sin that we can see in this text. And Lord, he is a mere reflection of Jesus, the one who is perfect in every way, the one who never sinned, who never fell short of the glory of God. But Lord, he was tempted, he was tried, he was beaten, he was spit upon, he was rejected. And even then, he never uttered a word that would forsake your name. And so Father, for that we thank you. We thank you that you gave us the perfect son, the mediator and high priest from the tribe and line of Michal today, the high priest. Lord, we love you. and we, like, it, It's just amazing to see. And so may we leave out of here celebrating the hope of the world, the peace of the world, the one who gives abundance to those who call upon his name. Romans 10, 9, and 10. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.